So does the market hitting all-time highs give you pause? Does How about just the crazy world we live in where you have Brexit, where you have political elections, where we always have the crisis of a potential terror attack? Is that making you not act on your investments? What we want to talk about today on The Money Guy Show is how to overcome investment analysis paralysis. Hang in there and you're going to learn a lot on today's show. It's Brian Preston, The Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, The Money Guy. Well, there's no way we're making it through all the stuff we put together for today's show. No, I think we are, man. I, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this. I think it's timely. I think we're going to be able to bang through it. The stack of paper I have in my hands is just, I mean, this is a lot of data. And, um, you, you know, this is one of those things, Monday morning, guys, when we came to work, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I've looked at the editorial calendar. What in the world are we going to do the show on this week? We were, had our phone call with Lisa talking about the upcoming editorial calendar for 2017. And, and I expressed to her, you know, hey, I'm trying to figure out this week what we're going to be talking about. And she goes, well, you know what? Me and my husband were just talking about this. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I've had at least three clients ask the exact same question in the last week. Why in the world are we not talking about this? So, voila. Here we are, guys. We're going to be talking about, because here's the question I've been getting a lot recently. Just in the last two weeks, we probably are up three to four times, different clients, even have a case study of a client that kind of reacted on an emotional level that we'll get into later. But we're at all-time highs. I mean, we since the election, contrary to what the financial media told us, we have been popping. I mean, this thing has been moving. So a lot of my clients have now started reaching out going, Brian, should we be nervous that we're at all-time highs? Or how about our new clients that come with lump sums because maybe they sold some land, sold a business, or they've just been stockpiling cash because they've been so nervous. They say, I'm kind of scared to go in right now. We're at an all-time high. What do we do? We want to give you the answer for that. We want to give you the techniques, the tools that are going to help you through all of these different scenarios. And then we want to go on the other side of it because it will, it, it, it sure is everything that we're talking about this. A few months is going to go by and all of a sudden something's going to happen because let's just review 2016. All right. But I mean, we started off 2016, came in and we were getting our teeth kicked in. The it, first 28 days for the S&P 500 this year in 2016 was the worst performing 28 days in history that they've been tracking the S&P 500. That's crazy. I was like, how, how is that possible? We were down 10.54% in the first 28 trading days. Um, that beat out, what year was it? The 1948 it was, 1948 loss, yeah. was 9.22% for the, the worst 28 days. I feel, I feel like we're running ESPN. You know how when you're watching like a college football game, yeah. they'll have their color, you know, uh -huh. they put it on a circle and they give you some random stat that nobody else and they're like, who cares about the first 28 days? But it, that, I mean, it's still, it plays into nicely. The, the beginning of this year was just not a good start. And then you fast forward to June and I think it really shocked a lot of people. We had this Brexit vote where all of a sudden we shed on Right after June 23rd, which is when the vote occurred, 
the S&P 500 lost 5.3% in the next two trading days. And this is something that didn't even occur here in the United States. Right. This was, uh, you know, it shows how the, the tentacles of the world are all kind of interconnected to some degree. And then lastly, this presidential election. If you stayed up and watched the presidential election on um, November 8th, it was it was interesting that the Dow futures were down over 800 points, and then the S and P 500 plunged more than five percent. So much so, if I remember correctly, I think they even they even halted trading in S and P futures that evening. I think. And then you fast forward, and we're up like six and a half percent. It's nuts. It's um, it's just a wild world we live in, and that's why, I, guys, there is no doubt in my mind that the fear. Us being scared of the fear way outweighs, it outweighs the euphoria that we all get from making money. That without a doubt, we are scared creatures. So we're going to help you today and get through all of that. I, I feel like I need to back up just to welcome because we are getting close to the end of the year. Might be, you know, these episodes sit out there past the period that we're actually broadcasting. So people are going to be getting to listen to this stuff in January, February, because we're going to be part of their New Year's resolution. So I want to welcome you. This is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston, sitting across from Mr. Bo Hansen. By day, we are fee-only financial advisors here in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you know, to brag about Bo and his credentials, he's a chartered financial analyst, a CFA, as well as a certified financial planner. And then I come from, you know, the, the strong background of public accounting with a CPA designation as well as a certified financial planner as well. So we, we love doing this. This was a passion project that started back in 2006. That's right. 2006, we started podcasting. We're kind of one of the pioneers out there that started all this. And then we've just been, Turning this passion project into something that keeps growing, helping you go beyond common sense and restoring order to your financial chaos. Go check us out, moneyguy.com. You can also write the show. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at moneyguy.com or my co-host, Mr. Bo Hanson, Bo at moneyguy.com. And remember, if you like what you hear, because we hear that so often that everybody's telling us, you guys think like I do, and I want a financial advisor that thinks like that. We work with clients now in 33 states, so please reach out and take that relationship to the next level. So, Bo, the first thing, before I jump into the specifics of talking about now that we're at all-time highs and how do we cope with that, I want to just talk about the general knowledge of understanding that every year, going forward, there's always going to be intra-year ups and downs. There's going to be volatility. I mean, you don't get the good returns that you get on diversified investing without having risk. And we always, we've shown this on a a quarterly report. We've sent this out with commentary with our our existing clients. I like to talk about the S&P 500 intra-year declines versus calendar year returns. Mm -hmm. Because you can think about years like 1998, where you know that the market got around 28% that year. And you're like, well, gosh, must that must have, have been year. a walk in the yeah. park. I, you know, I, I wish I was investing in a year like 1998. And then when you go back and you pull the stats on it and you realize, holy cow, wait a minute. Back then, at one point in the year, the market was down 11%. It was down 11%. So that means that there was approximately 42% swing. And then you hear about years like 1999 where the market was up 27%, but then it had an intra-year decline of 19%. I mean, there are years where you see that the market had a 50% fluctuation. That That is wild. 
and nobody remembers it. And that's why I loved going through the history of the beginning of this year, how we had the, the volatility at the beginning of the year. We had Brexit. Then we had this political presidential election. And I will tell you, in the history books, when we look back five years from now, they'll still be talking about probably this presidential election. Right, sure. But nobody's going to be talking about the first 28 trading days no. of 2016. Nope. This stuff will be lost. However, there will be people that will have made the worst financial decision they could have to their long-term future and the success of their army of dollar bills working for them just because they let their emotions get the best of them. So that's why the two key stats I need you to understand on intra-volatility and and variation of ups and downs within the financial markets is the S&P 500 has an average of a transition of 14.2%. That's the average loss somewhere in a year is around 14.2%. Even through, even though out of the last 36 years, 27 of those years have been positive years, meaning that it ends up the year making money. But somewhere in that year, the average volatility, the intra-year loss is somewhere around 14.2%. That gives you perspective to understand, guys, it's sometimes bumpy. Mm-hmm. It is bumpy. If this thing was easy, we'd all look like Warren Buffett and have a, a gazillion dollars because we just locked it down, put it in there. But we understand we're miserable creatures, and we have to fight through the emotional side of it to ensure that we're not sticking it to ourselves. So let's jump in. Bo, and you did some great research here as we get into specifically some of the world events. But I yeah. want to first talk about where we currently are. We have a lot of people reaching out to us and saying we're at all-time highs. What do we do? And I'll tell you where I've seen it a lot, Brian. A lot of companies have had a pretty solid year from a profitability revenue standpoint. And so a lot of our clients are getting bonuses, you know, big cash bonuses coming out either at the end of this year, beginning of next, or they have some incentives. Maybe it's, maybe you have stock options, RSU, stock appreciation rights, whatever the case may be that are coming due to you now. And you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what's my strategy? Okay. I've got my portfolio working, but I've got some new money flowing. What do I do with it? When, when do, do I just sit? Do I wait? You know, what, what do I go buy and how do I buy it? Yeah. I mean, the, the key question, these are, we, I, I got to tell you, nobody is smarter than money guy listeners. I mean, we have, when you guys reach out to us, I mean, I'm always impressed. I mean, we have doctors, attorneys, engineers, I mean, MIT grads. I mean, you know, that'd be um, a fun, Le- I wish, I wish we could see how many universities we have represented in our listenership. You know, wouldn't that be cool to see like how many? Of course. Many, I mean, a, a lot of EDU, mm-hmm. uh, you know, endings on email addresses when we're writing people back and so forth. But we, there is nobody smarter. But even though we are so smart, I think we outsmart ourselves and that's what creates that investment paralysis is that we hear, I know I, I had a call just in the last few weeks with a brand new client. Brilliant. I mean, this guy, I, you, you saw me preparing oh, yeah. for the meeting. I was like, I got to be, you know, on my toes on this because I know this guy's smart. Had it sitting on a huge sum of cash. Yep. And you ask, how did that happen? Well, it happened. He just because the market kept going up and he was like, you know, I'm just nervous about this thing. So before you know it, the cash has turned into a huge chunk of cash. And then that opportunity cost of feeling like, hey, the market keeps going up. I'm not getting into this. What can I do to get out of this? It eats at you. And then there's other people, exactly like you were talking about, Bo, that they come into a bonus or something else. And I'm like, well, gosh, should I just wait for, the, should I wait for that intra year loss yep. that you just talked about that's around 14%? Should I just sit back? Guys, all of that, every scenario I just talked to you, 
all had emotions tied to it. That's the common denominator for every one of those. That's the key concept that's derailing you from actually coming up with an implementation plan. So let me tell you how you break through that glass of figuring out how do you knock the rust off of this situation to actually where you're getting the cogs of your future moving forward. And the key thing that we do, and I do this with my own money, I mean, I'm in the process. I have a second house down in Atlanta, you know, that hopefully will be sold um, sometime in the spring. I will come into a lump sum from that equity when it comes. I plan on dollar cost averaging. That is the key thing. If you're sitting on the sidelines with lots of cash right now and you're concerned because you're like, well, I don't know, is the price to earnings ratio of the financial markets, is it okay right now? Should I be? Quit letting emotions pull you to the side. Um, let's dollar cost average. Let's, let's, instead of trying to choose the perfect time, let's just create a system that takes the emotion out of the process and put it in. And what I like about dollar cost averaging, before I even get into the analytics of it, is that, you know what's cool about dollar cost averaging? If we go into a bear market or a recession or something where it goes down, you can always accelerate. You can change because you just have to be aware of what the intrinsic value of what you think you're buying into. Create a plan, and then you can always be flexible to adjust in the future if you want to accelerate that. But it at least keeps you from just sitting there paralyzed and not investing. The thing that I love about dollar cost averaging, and I recognize there may be some logic flaw in this, but when you dollar cost average, you really can't be wrong. If you're buying and the market goes down, you're getting in cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. If you buy and the market's going up, every month you're making money. So it's kind of a win-win on all sides. Um, I can hear, because we, we know ha- this is the side effect of having a brilliant listening aud- audience. We have some um, Debbie Downers. We're like, Brian, dollar cost averaging, really? Come on. We all know LSI is where it's at. Lump yep. sum investing. That's where it's at. Here's, here's what I want to tell you guys. Cause we, we, we try to, to turn over all the rocks to give you all the knowledge. So you know, without a doubt, if you historically go and just go look at the data and say, I want to know from an empirical standpoint, is it better to do lump sum investing? Take that money today, put it in tomorrow, or should I spread this out over 10 months, 12 months? Which one is going to be better for my portfolio? We know between just because of the way history works, two-thirds to three-quarters of the time, you know, approximately seven to eight out of ten years, the markets make money. I mean, you just heard me say out of the last 36 years, 27 of them were positive. So without a a doubt, there is already something pushing the needle forward that's positive. The glass is half full, so it is better to put a lump sum in. However... Remember, I told you we're miserable, miserable creatures. So there's this other element that's sitting in the background called your emotion that gets you where it derails you. If everybody could just put the money in and forget about it, we'd probably be all right. But we know that there's an emotional side. So I'm blessed that in 2012, Vanguard created a very nerdy, nerdy analysis looking at the difference between lump sum investing and dollar cost averaging. And if you read this thing, their first summary page you read the summary and you're like, well, by all means, we're going to lump sum invest because yep. it tells you all the the statistical data that two-thirds of the time, you're always going to come out better doing lump sum investing. You're like, well, by all means, let's get it in there. But here's what you, if you go dial down and read into it, and it goes through all these 10-year ro- running totals where they're rolling, doing a rolling average over 10 years, comparing the different volatility, the different market performance. And they're not just doing the United States. They're doing Europe. They're doing Australia. They're kind of looking at these developed markets and trying to figure out 
Should you dollar cost average versus doing lump sum investing? And you get down to the final results. Yes, lump sum investing statistically makes it better. But do you know how much on average over 10-year history it gets you? How much, Brian? 2%. Oh, 2% total, 2% per year difference. 2% total. Now, look, I get it. You're like, Brian, if I got $2 million, that's $40,000. I get it. Guys, I get it. But if you tell me, okay, especially in a rich market environment like we're in right now, where the stock market's been booming really since March of 2009, we've been in full recovery mode, and now we've had this 6.5% rate return since the election, and you start looking at the price-to-earnings ratios, you go, guys, it's starting to look a little rich. I'm a little nervous about what could happen in the next 12 to 18 months. Quit worrying and create a system that fixes it. If you tell me I only have to pay a 0.2% insurance premium to protect myself from losing 20, 30, 40% if we have another market downturn, I'm signing up all day long. And, you know, I think it's one of those things, it's easy to get lost in the coldness of statistics. You know, you hear that 67% of the time you'd be better off with lump sum investing. But, but think of that in terms of people. If you have 10 people, Six or seven of those people would be better off lump sum investing, but there's still three or four people who who might not be better off. How willing are you to be one of those three or four? You know, if that that, that kind of makes it a little more tangible, a little more real to think about, especially when you're talking about something like financial independence and retirement, your life savings, and and th- those types of items. I wanted to take this a step further. And this is what I love about my team here. I'm going to go ahead and call us a bound. I mean, we're almost at the end of 2016. Starting in 2017, we are a bound wealth management. You, you know, we'll be sharing the website soon. But team abound here. You know, we were, we were brainstorming about the show prep for today. And then Carter, he goes, Brian, you know about Bob, the world's mar- you know worst market timer? I was like, I don't know about Bob, the world's worst market timer. And he pulls up this blog post. And this was written by Ben Carlson back in 2014. And this is a great illustration. I think Ben did an awesome job of setting this up. He took somebody who essentially graduated college and started working in the early 70s. He did a case study. So sure. Bob's not a real person. It's a fictional account, but it's cool what it does with the stats. Let me set this up for you. So Bob is this fictional guy who, you know, he comes out and he's very disciplined probably has an engineering type mindset where he says, you know what, I'm going to be very systematic with how I I do my finances. So what I plan on doing, I graduated, started my career at the beginning of 1970. Every year in the 70s, in the decade of the 70s, I'm going to save $2,000 a year. But I'm going to think, you know, by the time I get to the 80s, I'm probably got some pay raises, things have gone up. Instead of doing $2,000 a year, I'm going to start saving $6,000 a year in the 1980s. And then, um, actually, yeah, it goes up to, to 4000 a year in the 80s. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm messing this up a little bit. Back up. 2000 in the 70s. 4000 in the 80s. 6000 in the 90s. 8000 until he retires, which That's- is around 2013 or so. So you, you get it. Essentially, every decade, he's increasing $2,000, which I don't think is unreasonable whatsoever. So what sets up this perfectly is that he saves for three years, and then in 1972, when he puts his first $6,000 in there, because here's the thing that, that, that Ben sets up about Bob, the horrible investor, 
is that Bob is one of these guys, he is not going to invest until he just feels euphoric and super excited about right. what's going on. He's not the type of guy who, even though he's saving systematically, he's saving in cash until he goes to the holiday cocktail party or the Christmas party and somebody's telling him about all the money they're making the S&P 500. He goes, you know what? This is the time I need to get in. He wants so, to be greedy when others are greedy. You see what I'm setting up here is that the way Bob is going to do this is he's going to buy at the worst possible times. Instead of the maximum financial opportunity, which is usually at the bottom of the of, of the, the downturns, he's buying at the tippity top of the, the 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 markets when they're just booming, hitting these all time highs. So the first purchase, I'll fast forward. I have to flip through my screens here. The first purchase is December of 1972. He puts his his hard saved first three years of work savings six thousand dollars into the markets. He almost immediately loses in the coming months. 48%. Ouch. That's $6,000 turns into a little over $3,000. He is so hurt and burned by this. He says, I'm going to leave that money in the market. I'm not going to sell it. I'm just going to keep it rocking and rolling. But you know what? I'm staying the heck out with my savings of $2,000 a month through the 70s and then $4,000 a month through the 80s. I'm not going to get back in until, holy cow, what a great time to invest in August 1987. So in August of 1987. Man, that sounds familiar for yeah, some Yeah, it's right before we hit Black Monday, which in October of 1987. So he, he puts it in at $46,000. He invests $46,000 of cash in August of 1987, almost immediately loses 34%. Oh, Bob. He's, Bob is just like, this, this investing thing. But you know what? I'm going to leave it in there. Not going to worry about it. Leave it in there. Let it keep working. But I'm going to keep building up my cash. Once again, I'm going to build up my cash. And then he gets all excited because all this great innovation is going on in the technology space. You got all these internet companies. You got, you know, the dot com revolution is here. He's buying, he's signing up for Grocery X or Web Grocer, you know, to get his grocery brought in and he's investing and thinking about investing in it. So in December 1999, he puts in $68,000 of cash. Almost immediately it loses 49% because the market goes through the dot com bubble. And then, of course, he's burned. He's getting close to retirement. He's built up some more cash. So he puts $64,000 into the financial markets October of 2007. Ugh. We know what happens. We know that the financial crisis occurs, the worst downturn since the Great Depression. So in total, in summary, $6,000 in 1972, 46 in 1987, 68000 in 1999, and then 64000 in 2007 for a total invested of $184,000. You heard how every one of those things, and in that last one, I don't know if I told you, he lost 52% in the months right after that. So with all of that drama, so let's think. I mean, he lost like fifties and forties, and so I'm thinking he lost an average of somewhere around thirty. How did he make money? That's what you're thinking. Yeah, how if, in the if world he had did he 180 make money? Eighty invested, and he lost on average thirty percent per pop. I bet you're going to tell me that when he got to retirement, he had about 130 grand saved up. No, so, so at the end of now, look, I get it. This realize this blog post was written back in 2014, so the timing is going to seem suspect. But then when you hear it was written in 2014. He runs this through the end of 2013. So you run this through the end of 2013. And by the way, everything's investing in the S&P 500. We know that that's a little unrealistic because most of us want to be diversified as we go through our retirement. Which we'll talk about more in a second. But and we'll, we'll definitely touch on that. But at the end of his working career, even with all those ups and downs and only saving $184,000, he, he was a millionaire. 
had an, had an investment. The value of his investments was $1.1 million. Here's what I like that Ben did even. He went a step further, which ties into the dollar cost averaging concept that I was just talking about because we're all scared. I mean, I even get nervous, guys. I mean, at the end of t- 2008, when all heck was breaking loose, I'd go home and look in my backyard. And this is back when I was in Georgia and there was a golf course back there. I was like, I could put corn out there. I could put corn out there and we'd probably, I'd probably be able to put some cabbage, some corn. I'd be able to provide for my family. These are the things that you're thinking when you're irrational and emotional about things. And then you find out that if I he had just dollar cost average, instead of being worth 1.1% or 1.1 million, his net worth of his investment portfolio would have been $2.3 million. Holy cow. Double. It, turbo, it turbocharged it because it took the emotion. It, it, turned, it created a systematic tool that no matter what was going on in the world, Bob, the horrible investor, was buying. And I think I love this story because it just shows you how emotions are not your friend. You've got to create a system. And also, like Ben put a quote on here that was from an Alan Greenspan interview from the Harvard Business Review. Let me find that quote. I've got, of course, everything a little out of order here. Here it is. This is an Alan Greenspan quote that he gave from an interview he did where it was it was a, a Harvard Business Review where it was like what Alan Greenspan has learned from 2008. There was a whole article that um, you can go check out. And one of the things Alan Greenspan shared about the markets was a discussion he had with Warren Buffett. And this is what he said. This is the quote from Alan Greenspan. It said, quote, Warren, he's talking about Warren Buffett, of course, it strikes me that if you do nothing else, you never sell. That is, if you can grit your teeth through and just disregard short-term declines in the market or even long-term declines in the market, you'll come out well. I mean, you just stick all your money in stocks and go home and don't even look at your portfolio. You'll do far better than if you try to trade it. There is a huge inefficiency in the emotionality of the human being. And that's why that's what buying and, and just letting the money work and not freaking out, having a plan of action is going to be your, 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 your saving grace. I'd like to step in and just throw one small disclaimer out here that I think Alan, as well as Bob, the horrible investor, would agree with me on. The one common thread that you kind of noticed uh, is what they were buying was good. It was a good investment. Their yeah. timing was off, but they were still buying the S&P 500. What we are not suggesting here is if maybe when you were younger, earlier in your life, or maybe this just happened yesterday, maybe you invested in a really high-cost, active-managed, commission-based mutual fund that's not a great investment. Or maybe you have an equity indexed annuity that might not make sense for your specific situation, or maybe you're growing a life insurance policy that you're unsure of. We're not suggesting that the best action is to do nothing because it'll work out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a true statement. It works to do nothing so long as you're making sure you're following some core tenets of I'm buying low-cost products, low-cost investments that I understand that makes sense for my situation. So don't misread this as saying whatever decisions you made in the past – bury your head in the sand and you'll be just fine. That's not exactly what we're saying here. And one other key component that I've said before, and I will say again, the hardest part to success is being that disciplined investor who's doing the deferred gratification of saving. Bob was a horrible investor, without a doubt, horrible. But you know what he was doing? He was consistently saving. Yep. He was saving that two thousand in the deck in the seventies, the four thousand a year in the eighties, and then the six thousand in the nineties, and so on. This is the thing that upset me 
what I remember when I first learned about investing, y'all have heard neither Bo or myself, we don't nor we don't come from a lot of resources. And I remember my parents though, they were outstanding savers. I was always so impressed with my parents to make so much of so little. And they saved consistently, but they just never knew how to make it work. They never put it to work for them. They never created the army that was actually an efficient army that was out there creating more. You know, versus, I think I've shared with y'all, my father-in-law wasn't as great of a saver, but he was buying into Fidelity Magellan Fund back when Fidelity Magellan was just booming and knocking the leather off of everything it had going on. That is the type of stuff. If you can do the hardest part, which is being the disciplined person that's saving, and then put it to work? Guys, it gets easy. Wealth is a choice. And that's the thing I always try to remind people is if you can just do the hardest part, just save the money. That's the hard work. And then don't squander that opportunity by not giving that army of dollar bills the opportunity to go out there and actually work. There's no reason to have them sitting on the bench. You need to actually have those guys working for you. And so, Brian, I hear what you're saying, right? If, I, if, I'm, a, if I'm a young guy, girl, I just got out of college, I'm about to start saving, I have no reason to be nervous that as of this recording, the Dow Jones is 50 points away from hitting 20,000. But, but what about if I'm someone who is later in my career, maybe – I'm age 55, 60, approaching retirement. Should I be really nervous about the market hitting all-time highs? Or is there something else I should be doing in my portfolio to protect myself? Look at you trying to keep me on point. This is good. I will, This is why you are such a good, we're teammates. This is why we're good <laughs> partners. It's because the key second component we need to talk about, guys, is what to do when unexpected events occur. And we know the older you get, it gets to the point, and this is the type of clients we attract. They're not trying to hit home runs anymore. They're not trying to figure out what the next Apple or Google or whatever you know company you want to put that's going to have a factor of growing 20-fold. Most of our clients now want a portfolio that's going to grow, provide income, and then also just provide some stability and protect that capital while they're retired because there is a, it's stressful when you do approach retirement, because right now, if you're younger and you hit a 2008-type crisis, you just think, well, I'll just work a little longer. Guess what, though? When you retire and that money leaves and starts working for you and you can't go back to work, that's stressful. So, Bo, you're exactly right. We've got to talk about what happens when there is volatility because it's not always about making money. There's also, you can tell how good your advisor is or how good your portfolio is by how it performs when everything in the world seems like the sky is falling. So I, I think that's a great transition. And while, that's why I liked talking about earlier what happens when you have Brexit, when you have elections, when you have debt ceiling discussions. That was what we were talking about, it seemed like, the last two years. Right, yep. You don't hear about that. And then terror attacks. I mean, this is stuff that's going to happen in our geopolitical world that we live in right now. There's going to be something that's very negative that could make you feel like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And the, the, the planning opportunity is diversification. You gotta have a diversified portfolio working your behalf. Before we talked about just diversification, Bo, I know you'd found some research about markets and how they recover from crisis. It, give me your thoughts on, on what, you, you know, where we are with crisis, concerns, fear, and as well as diversification. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. You know, a lot of people get very nervous about these unexpected events and what's going to happen. Uh, you know, what happens if we do see another 2008? What happens if we do see 
another Great Depression? You know, how do we approach sort of some of these crises? So we thought it'd be interesting to go look and see, well, how do markets generally act uh, when we recover from a crisis? So we went and pulled um, some statistics on some really uh, popular events that have happened over the last, uh, this is going back over 80 years, um, you know, looking at the attack on Pearl Harbor, outbreak of the Korean War, Eisenhower heart attack, Cuban Missile Crisis, all these different things. Uh, and what's amazing, what's incredible is that um, while some types of investment markets, like real estate is an easy one to think about, they have what's called a U-shaped recovery. So you ride high, you see this pullback, and then it kind of can sort of ride around the bottom for a while before you start to see a slow recovery. Financial markets tend to work in a slightly different way. They, they recover in much more of a V-shaped fashion, meaning, uh, that in 2009, you know, we're coming out of the Great Recession in March, the first two weeks of March, when the Dow hit, you know, 6,600, uh, the recovery wasn't something that happened at a snail's pace. It actually happened very, very quickly. And 2009 was a year that the market was up over 20%. Uh, and so what we see is that even though these big crises happen and these big uh, cataclysmic events happen, the markets tend to be very resilient through all kinds of events like presidential assassinations and oil embargoes and Great Depressions and wars and world wars and, and, and all of these different uh, items and scenarios. Well, give, give give some examples though. Give me give me some numbers. Like uh, let me throw out a few that that you know I know we had talked about when we were doing pre show pre show prep. Um, September 11th was a big one. I oh, mean, yeah. That's one, I think, recent enough that it freaked a lot of people out. I mean, how much did the markets lose and what did they do? How did the recovery look? Happen? Yeah, so from September 10th to September 21st, that's kind of the time frame we're looking at, the, uh, the September 11th terrorist attack, um, the loss during that period, during that, uh, what's that, 11 days, was about 12%. One month after that, so going all the way out to October 21st, the market had made back 11.3%. And then if you look five years later, market had made 8.3%. And then going out 10 years later, market had made 3.9% per year. Those are annualized numbers that you're coming through. Uh, and so even with that, that cataclysmic event, the markets are still resilient, making money through the long term. Did you hear why the 10 year went down on that one? Cause that one, that one bled over into the, the Lehman Brothers That's and right. the financial collapse. But it still shows because we could look at those numbers. I know when I pulled, when you showed me this, this sheet that was put out, I mean, the Lehman Brothers collapse, that was all that when things went bad in 2008, it was between September 5th through November 20th, right through the election of President Obama. Um, the market was down 39% during that period. Um, but then one month later, it was up 18.3%. And then one year later, it was up 48.8%. And then the annualized rate of return was 21.5%. That's the rubber band effect where you pull it down. If it's, if it drops that fast, you can think about visually pulling a rubber band down. It's probably going to launch it back at, at a pretty fast, rapid speed as well. And then the only other one I wanted to talk about is because it is still fresh on, I don't know if it's fresh because we're talking about 30 years right. now, but um, the stock market crash of 1987, they call it black, you know, the, the Black Monday where where we had the market lost 30% in a day. I mean, can you imagine that? Think about that. You just said the market's close to 20,000. What if we came in here tomorrow and the market had a drop of 6,000? We went from 20 to 14 in one day. How many people are going to lose their mind 
when you lose 31% that fast. So here's, here's the stats though. One month later, it's up 7%. A year later, it's up 27.7%. Five years later, it's averaged 17% a year. In the last 10 years, after that 1987 collapse, it was up 189 But Brian, who are the people who didn't get, you know, who are the people that didn't get to participate in that upside? Well, people that sell. I mean, that's the thing. The case study, you guys know, we, we manage money professionally for, for our clients all across the country. We have great clients. Um, we do have clients that even with the best diversified portfolio, even good portfolios can lose money in downturns. I think that's a key thing. Any advisor who's guaranteeing you performance, tell if they're speaking out of both sides, they're saying, look, we can guarantee you don't lose money, but we also can guarantee you're going to make great money. There's no way because it's just a trade-off. You don't get comfort if you're taking risk. If you want long-term great rates of returns, you're going to have to absorb some form of volatility. So even good portfolios, diversified portfolios, can have volatility. Well, we had, uh, you know, I tell the story back in 2008, I had one client that just, and they had some health issues going with their spouse. And so, so there was other stresses in addition to the financial stuff that was going on. I had one client that did liquidate in 2008. And then I, after this election, we had one client who decided to make an adjustment. Now, fortunately, we were able to talk this client into only making a moderate adjustment, meaning out of one account instead of all accounts. However, it created a lot of really turmoil, turmoil and pain for this client because you heard me say the market has made 6.5%, probably more by the time this, this podcast gets right, released. Yeah. Since the election, this client paid attention to the futures where the market was down, the Dow were down 800 points in aftermarket trading, and S&P was down 5% the next morning, just was really concerned about things and, and took a, 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 an attempt to mitigate. The problem was, with timing, you don't have to get it right once. You have to get it right twice. So he was wrong. Unfortunately, the markets did not go down and now he's just been sitting in. So guess what we did? We dollar cost averaged. But that's the thing that I think ties into what you were speaking to as well, Bo. Um, diversified portfolio, by the way, just so you know, we're talking about bonds. We're talking about equities, whether it's international, whether it's United States, domestic stuff, as well as real estate. And then, you know, the thing is, even within your domestic, you're going to have some small companies, some mid-sized companies, some large companies. Buy those index on the large side. That's a very efficient marketplace. We love how affordable those funds are. And if you're overwhelmed, if you're young and you're like, Brian, I hear you talking about this. How do I do diversified when I'm young? I can't afford to hire somebody like you. Guess what, guys? This is where technology and innovation has made the world a better place. Target retirement funds. I mean, if you go look, Vanguard has their target date retire retirement funds. You have Fidelity Freedom Funds. I mean, everybody has come out with their own product where they are allowing you just to choose the year you think you want to retire, and then they're going to create a glide path that will do that for you. Now, of course, when your portfolio gets to 250, 300,000, then you can talk about, do you want to take diversification to the next level? And there might be some efficiency, some alpha, some, some, you know, sharp ratio issues that we want to look at and see if a professional can step in and help out. But while you're, don't focus on that stuff when you're building that, that base layer of army of dollar bills that are working for you. Go buy those target funds. They're dirt cheap, and they, they're really diversified. It will help you through everything. And I want to kind of close things out with giving you some general general thoughts about investing in, 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 when you're looking at your portfolio in general. 
I have to tell people visually, this is the way you need to think about investing. When you are a long-term investor, think about a person that is about to hike a mountain with a yo-yo. Yes, the market is going up and down in the short term. So that yo-yo is going up and down. But when you look at the long term, if you watch this person as they hike up the mountain, even with the yo-yo in the short term going up and down, when you look at it 10 years later, you're like, holy cow, how did I get this high? How did I get to this point in elevation with my portfolio, with my savings, now that I have this army of dollar bills that are working for me? That is the visual, and that's the way you need to think about your investments. You are that individual that's walking up the mountain with your yo-yo, and don't let those short-term things totally push you into making a bad decision. This is why a, a dirty secret of investing, a dirty secret of anybody who tells you they got the financial markets figured out is if you watch... If you listen to talk radio, if you watch the, the cable news channels, there's always going to be somebody trying to sell you a, a newsletter. I mean, in the last week, Bo, I've gotten emails, you know, solicitation emails telling me Mark Cuban is saying what to expect about the collapse of the markets after the election. I got one just last week saying Warren Buffett has given his thoughts on the Brexit vote. I mean, guys, this is six months ago, but yet they're still marketing with these newsletter subscriptions that you can do that will supposedly tell you how to navigate. They're trying to sell you something. Seed banks, the bunkers in your backyard, the gold people, all these people don't know any more about what's going to happen in the short term, any more than Warren Buffett does, any more than I do, any more than your local banker. So if you can understand that in the short term, markets are very inefficient. They go all over the place. They're very susceptible to emotions and volatility. But in the long term, we do know innovation. The companies creating better products is putting us in in just a, a better place for the future. You're going to be okay if you just can keep that glass half full optimism about where we are and you will be rewarded. You know, I, I'll leave, I would like to leave this show with sort of one thought to resonate in your mind. You know, there are a lot of folks who, uh, when they got out in 2008, Dow hit 6,600 and it started its recovery. They said, okay, well, I'll just wait for it to go back to seven. Well, as soon as it hits 7,000 again, I'll buy back in. Well, those folks, unfortunately, are still waiting. So if you're asking the question, are the markets too high right now? I will just pull a quote from Nick Murray, and I think this is fantastic, and I'm going to read it verbatim. He says, if you think the market's too high, wait till you see it 20 years from now. It's true. I mean, because it all goes, why do stock, what's, what are stocks built on? They're built on earnings of companies. And if you have to believe that things are just getting better. I mean, it just is. With Through innovation, our life is easier. I've mentioned to you guys a few seconds ago about target retirement funds. They didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. It was funny when we were pulling the research on Bob, the investor, when they were doing one of the scenarios they had to consider was, what do you do? How do you use the S&P 500 from 1972 to 1978 or whatever? That was pre-Vanguard in the S&P 500. So there wasn't an index fund. It was only through the innovation that we have now access to these ETFs, index funds. This stuff is going to continue. And that's why you have to be optimistic about our future And we're going to survive some crazy, crazy things that the financial media, as well as your nightly news, are going to try to scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. You're going to be okay. And kind of closing things out, this is the Christmas time of the year. And my favorite time of the year is right before Thanksgiving, all the way through, we go through the holidays, because I just get so thankful. I get so sappy. 
just about how life, I get have a lot of family. We had a lot of family in for Thanksgiving. We got a lot of family coming back to the house for Christmas. I just hope you guys know none of this would be possible without this family. The Money Guy family has been tremendously just incredible to all of us. And we hope you know we don't take that lightly. This this show was started with the purest of intentions, and everything we have ever tried to do with this podcast is to keep that spirit going forward. We think the more generous we are, the better you will be, and we know the more generous we are, the better you are, the more successful we will also be. It will come full circle. I had an email this last week, Bo, that we've been trading emails with this individual. Started listening to us in college. Yep. That's how long we've been doing this. Makes me feel old. Started listening to this podcast in college. Now, killing it in his professional career. Been out of school almost 10 years from college. And he's he's reaching out to us. If you want to know what brings me fulfillment, makes me feel like in my own little small way we have made the place the world a better place, that type of stuff. I, sure. I, I get tingles right now and, you know, got to hurry up and close this show out before I break down into, and everybody's like, why is he so emotional? About this stuff really excites me because you tell me you've been listening to this show from college. Now you're killing it in your career and you've built all this financial independence and you're trying to now talk to us. I, in my own little way, feel like our fingerprints are on that and that just makes me so happy. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody leaving comments out there on iTunes, Anybody who reaches out to us and writes us, I just hope you know how much I appreciate you. Please don't keep us a secret. Keep sharing. If you liked it uh, so much that you want to take your relationship to the next level, maybe you're sitting on that cash and you're scared to do anything, we're here. Brian, B-R-I-A-N at MoneyGuy.com. My co-host, Mr. Bo Hanson, B-O at MoneyGuy.com. Check us out. We'll talk to you in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Bo, this is kind of an Easter Brian Preston is a partner with I know, Preston I know the mic's still hot. Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered in, investment in. advisory firm regulated by the Securities Because we're probably changing this disclosure with the whole new company. Oh, yeah, we got to change this. So if you guys are listening Preston to this, you, breathe it in because we'll be changing this disclosure soon. Investment or tax I think we're going to change the, the, Money Guy the outro music, too. The information provided is for informational purposes only. <laughs> I don't know. It does not constitute Just financial, financial baby steps. tax. Eat that elephant one bite at a time. Okay, and then here it comes. Hold tight. The ever-popular Horny Scratch. People aren't going to know that's really the title of it. That's really what it's called. There it is. Money Guys, out.